To understand the history we embody is to understand whose eyes we used to see, whose stories and fantasies we inherit. Colonization, along with its violence, is an altered looking, the imposition of a story of entitlement. This is an episode in part about the land of Hawaii, but it's also about the struggle for sovereignty. It's about how we both imagine and destroy paradise and the connection and intimacy available when we begin with listening. Our guest today is Jamaica Heolia Sorio, who is a Kanaka Maoli Wahine artist, activist, and professor of Indigenous and Native Hawaiian politics at UH Manoa. She is the author of Remembering Our Intimacies, Mo'olelo, Aloha Aina, and Ea. She is also a friend and takes us through a really deep and challenging, gorgeous exploration of freedom and intimacy. I hope you enjoy this episode. Jamaica, first, I want to thank you for saying yes to being on this podcast, and I want to welcome you to Finding Our Way. Thank you. It was um, humbling to be invited and just stoked to be in conversation today. I'm honestly so grateful. I haven't talked to you in a long time, but you know, as soon as, I don't know if listeners know, but I lived in Hawaii for some time, where my partner's family is from and is currently, and you were one of the first I would say you're part of the first people I met, but one of the first people I witnessed in Hawaii telling the story or telling a story of Hawaii and your work and your voice deeply impacted me. So I want to thank you for that. And I'm just grateful to be in conversation with you. I want to start with the question I always start with, um, which, you know, the podcast is called Finding Our Way. And it's kind of about asking questions that feel critical for this time that we're in and talking with the people who are asking questions, who are attempting to answer questions, who are trying to figure out a path forward. So I want to ground us first with this question from your perspective, from where you are, where are we? And we can be defined however you'd like to define it, but where are we? Where are we headed How would you talk about this time? Mm. Thank you for that question. The first word that jumps to my mind is not surprisingly a Hawaiian word. The word is hulihia. It means to overturn, but it also means to be in a state of overturning and in a state of both chaos and creation and abundance and fear, but also power. And the word has been used to describe everything from prayers and chants to our god of the volcanoes, Pele, to describing actual political upheaval. You know, when a new mo'i, a new supreme leader is is taking control of a particular part of our aina, of our land, of our environment. It's been the best word, I think, to describe actually much of my life. You know, I'm 31 years old. I was born in 1990. In Hawaii, that means I was born really on this major upswing of the Hawaiian movement that had gained steam since the 1970s and 80s, where people were really starting to figure out strategy and tactics and had a bit of a modern educational foundation in, in Hawaiian teaching. And that's just only gotten more palpable, that hulihia feeling especially in, in 2019, when we were, we'll probably talk about this on Mauna Awakea. And then 
everything that's happened since from a coup staged at the United States Capitol to a global pandemic to the poisoning of the U.S. military poisoning Hawaii's aquifer, all of that fear and the kind of terrifying nature around that speaks to a hulihia, but also all of the beautiful uprising from, you know, indigenous rights, collective movements from Black Lives Matter, uh, people taking power back is a kind of hulihia and insistence of the power we always had. I like to describe this time as that because it helps me make sense of all the hard parts of our lives right now. And there's so much that is difficult and painful and terrifying, but it also gives me strength and hope and understanding that this is actually what transformation has always felt like. This is what it feels like to tear down violent systems and to make space to create the world we deserve. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that really is striking me in what you're sharing, what you're offering in this frame is not a looking away, it's not a denial, it's not saying everything is great and okay, but saying this is part of a process of undoing what has been done. I think there's a lot of um, purpose in that. There's a lot of possibility in that in, in any direction, but it gives us a, a place to look and act. You named so many places that I want to go in this conversation. And I, I first want to begin with, I want to begin with Hawaii in a way. I think there's so many projections, colonial projections, I'll say, that if you are not from Hawaii, if you're from the United States in particular, you inherit so many projections on what Hawaii is and what entitlement you have to Hawaii. I just want to ask you, as Kanaka, as Kanaka Maoli, what, what is Hawaii to you? Can you help me see, to whatever de degree I can, Hawaii? Hmm. I don't think anyone in my 31 years of life has ever asked me that question. So I'm going to sit with that for a second. But the, the first answer, of course, is that Hawaii is home. And it's not just my home but it's home to my family and it's, and when I say it's home to my family, I mean, it's been home to thousands of generations of my people, both human and beyond human. It is now home to my daughter, which means Hawaii has changed for me in a real way, which I think you, you probably understand. It, it seems so simple to say, but is actually quite profound and important for native people to insist that we will continue to be here especially in a place like Hawaii, as you say, that it has so many powerful colonial projections that have erased us or depicted us as somehow ornamental to this place, uh, when that couldn't be further from the truth. Hawaii is also a place that is somehow still so far beyond the power of that colonial imagination that is always coming back, that no matter how grossly overdeveloped or harmed or violated. She just keeps coming back. Early in the pandemic, when we shut down tourism, the fish came back, the sharks came back in a matter of months, right? So it's, it's this place that is always regenerating and correcting us, correcting our harms. I think we have a lot to learn from Hawaii in that, in that kind of tenacity 
in that understanding that I consider myself a kia'i, a protector of mountain, of land, of water. But I've, I've said this before, but I've, I find the need to say it often. We as humans don't actually protect our environment. Uh, she gives us an opportunity to come back into our humanity when we step into the role of protector. But we know that the Aina will outlive us. She will outlive every colonial scar and trauma that has been inflicted upon her. And we gather strength from that as, as Kanaka. I've learned to hate the word resilience <laughs> because it kind of honors the ways we've been violated. But there is certainly a resilience to our Aina that we draw mana from, that we draw power and inspiration from. And that's the Hawaii that is currently buried under all kinds of tourist BS. Yeah, yeah. You know? I, I do, you know, it's, when I first went to Hawaii, you know, my partner was living there and she asked me, I mean, she was my partner then, but she asked me to come visit her. And I got there and I thought, this is not the United States. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it occurred to me pretty quickly that that was a whole experience that I continued to have over time. But it also reshaped how I felt about, at that time, I was going back to Los Angeles where I was living. And Los Angeles looked different to me. The colonial project of Los Angeles looked different to me. I'm grateful for the realignment of my own looking that... Hawaii was able to offer me too. Um, I, I want to drop into this question around tourism because I, I feel like this last, you know, during the pandemic, it was the first time I had heard people I knew saying, oh, should I not go to Hawaii? <laughs> Do you think I shouldn't go to Hawaii? Because of, I think, activists and organizers like you and other folks who whose voices were breaking through in that moment to say much of what you shared about how Hawaii came back, fish came back, the sharks came back. But I, I guess I just want you to trouble that water some too about tourism and Hawaii. Cause I think for some people it was the first time that they had even engaged the idea that Hawaii was not accessible to them. And from whatever perspective you want to kind of talk about that accessibility and tourism, I'd just love to hear your thoughts. I, I don't remember where I read this, which is unfortunate because I like to cite my sources, but I read this wonderful quote a few years ago and, and someone said, Hawaii is the place where even the most politically conscious go to sleep. You know, like I've got all kinds of f folks that I would describe as woke, you know, doing the work in their own communities, organizers, activists, critically conscious in into the praxis of it all who it doesn't reach over into the paradise that is how Hawaii has been depicted, right? Hawaii is almost beyond the reach of political consciousness in that way. For me, that wasn't something that was illuminated by the pandemic as it might've been for a lot of, a lot of people because that's just been our experience for so long. So yeah, I, I think about this, this question a lot. What does it mean as someone who is very, openly, outwardly anti-tourism, anti the corporate tourism model, like unequivocally, totally against it. <laughs> I think about what, is it, what does it mean to be a visitor? 
What does it mean to build pilina, intimacy with people beyond Hawaii, with comrades who we're doing work with? You know, if we say that Hawaii has something to teach the world, and I believe it does, I believe Kanaka have something we can offer in the same way that we have a lot to learn from our friends. That means there has to be some opening for those kinds of exchanges. But because the tourism industry has saturated our lives and really caused extreme detrimental harm to our people and our environment, it sucks up all the oxygen, right? It's so hard to imagine what it would mean to welcome someone and creates this kind of almost like shut it all down. I don't want anyone to come here. Um, you know, and that's part of a larger history, I think, for a lot of people who are coming to these ideas for the first time. I'm a nerd, right? So I'm always going to suggest, y'all, you should read this. But Haunani K. Trask, God, our beautiful Kumu, she wrote a beautiful article called Lovely Hula Hands. And it was published first in 1993 in a book called From a Native Daughter, which is obviously a, a nod to Notes of a Native Son. Um, so connections, you know, there. But the end of the chapter, she says, if you're thinking of coming to my homeland, don't. We don't need any more tourists. We certainly don't like them. And that sentence alone, that's a direct quote. That sentence alone really shattered a lot of people's <laughs> minds in a certain way. They're like, you can't say that. But the power of an, a Native woman saying to everyone, like, you cannot come here in a good way right now. And what does that force us to do? And how must we look, reflect on ourselves in a new way? when consent is very clearly not granted and we cannot say we didn't know. And so, yeah, I, sh I struggle through those questions a lot in wanting to imagine and really live into a world where people's access to Hawaii is not mediated by the Hawaii Tourism Authority or not mediated by some BS Disney movie or some... Apple Plus series developed by Jason Momoa, but it's really like a authentic, honest, vulnerable intimacy forged between real people like meeting at the center. But you know, colonialism's just in the way. So I don't know what to do with that today. <laughs> <laughs> this always happens to me when I interview people. I feel so inspired and alive and curious. And I, I'm feeling that with you right now. One, I think I want to say to people, not from Hawaii, that I think part of what gets obscured too in our construction of like a paradise of Hawaii or fantasy of Hawaii is that we forget to honor the land that we live on and to see the beauty in the land that we live on. It, it's just a, it's a paradigm that puts a paradise elsewhere where that ends up aiding in our destruction to the lands that we live on. Because mm -hmm. mm. so much about Hawaii is like that paradise, but also this idea of a need for escape. Then I really think about what kind of world have we created that we are all so hungry for escape? You know, whatever systems and violences we can name here to talk that we're all trying to escape from. I had never heard anyone explain this other side of the, the paradise mindset as a way to dishonor your own land. That's going to stick with me for a while. But I, but I think about that why not create a world that we don't want to escape? 
Well, I mean, honestly, Hawaii taught me that. And I say that in a very, as much as I can in a grounded, <laughs> non-romantic way. Hawaii taught me that. Hawaii taught me that, taught me to, to look differently at where I stand. And, and in some ways it helped me return to the South. So I'm grateful for that. I want to kind of deepen into this place around intimacy and relationship to one another and relationship to place. And I've heard you talk some, I've seen you write some about intimacy and the practice of aloha aina. And I just wonder if you can talk about how you are not only conceptualizing because it puts it only in the head, but how you're living this practice of intimacy that is inclusive of and connected to and within the land. Yeah. So for for folks who may not be familiar with that phrase, aloha aina, if you were to look it up in a dictionary, it would say love for the land, to care for the land. And then shortly after, it would probably say something like patriot or patriotism. So, and that's the definition of the word patriotism and patriot. That was really early associations that were offered to me in in that word growing up, and it never quite fit in my head. And luckily, there are people like Noi Noi Silva who wrote really extensively about how patriotism exalts something very different than Aloha Aina does. Aloha Aina exalts the land that puts the land at the center of our nationhood, of our relationships to each other. It's a completely new orienting or different orienting. And I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this phrase. <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote a book inspired by Aloha Aina that really tries to not define it, but to help to describe some of the intimacies that it includes that have been often erased you know, some of the intimacies that have been bastardized by our Western Christian conversion in Hawaii, you know, the ability for a wahine to fiercely love and care for another wahine. But if I were to break down aloha aina at its most basic and fundamental sense to me, aloha aina is a reminder, an orientation even to understanding that in order to love someone, you must love the aina that has fed them, that has fed you, that has taught you about love, and that these relationships are completely inseparable. Meaning, if I am removed from my aina, if I'm removed from my land, I am removed from my source of learning about love, and therefore my relationships will suffer. I will not be an effective lover, an effective partner. I don't have access to learning from the kahawai, the stream, and how she loves the lo'i, the tarot patch. I don't have the knowledge and the instruction from how the kai, the ocean, and the kahawai, the stream, meet at the muliwai, at the brackish water, and they make love and produce life, right? Without my connection to aina, I don't get to learn that there. So I learn about love elsewhere, right? I learn about it and TV, and on the internet, and on Twitter. (laughs) And that is a disorientation from what it means to really aloha. And I'm thinking about this, you know, you asked me, what does this practice look like, right? Because I've written and I've, I've theorized about it a lot. I've spent a lot of time with aloha aina in my head and imagining, you know, what does that mean for my body? 
what does that mean for my spirit and the way that I move? And there is no greater example to me than the time that I was blessed to spend at the foot of Mauna Awakea in 2019 at the Pu'u the place of refuge we established at Pu'u And that place of refuge, for those who may not be familiar, was established specifically to block further desecration of our Mauna and block the movement of construction vehicles traveling up to the summit of our mountain. But it was in that place where that connection between a love for land and a love for the people beside me was really put to action. When you think about, as an example, on July 17th, 2019, 38 elders were arrested blocking desecration of that Aina, of that land. And following their their arrest and removal, the road was then blocked by a couple hundred Native Hawaiian women, Native Hawaiian mahu, queer and trans folk, and Native Hawaiian kane, men. They took over the road. We saw ourselves as protectors. We, um, we articulated ourselves as people who were protecting the mountain that was at our backs. But then we also, in a very real way, protecting each other when faced with five different enforcement agencies across the islands, including the National Guard, militarized police, LRADs, also known as sound cannons, tear gas canisters, guns, batons, right? When you stand in that line saying, I'm here to protect Aina, and then you realize you're linked in a line of women who you would give your your life to protect, it makes very clear the way that the mountain or all Aina, all land, becomes the the apu, the water basin almost, to carry your love for your people, right? The, the aina makes the space for that. We would not have been loving on each other in that way if the mountain didn't call. But I also think about how then the mountain, in my conception and practice of alohaina, becomes not just a theoretical ancestor to myself and my now five and a half month old child, but how she is in every way a part of this child's genealogy, right? I I fell in love with my partner on the mountain. I met and was protected by the Kane who helped us conceive this child on that mountain. I dreamed, I wrote my first letters to this child on that mountain, right? So that is also Aloha that that place, we're actually taking her there tomorrow. I'm really excited about it. This is why I'm, I'm thinking about this, right? But that place, without her, she would not exist. And I know without the mountain, I would not exist. And, and that's more removed in my mind. There are other degrees of separation. But for my child, there is no degree of separation. If there was no Mauna, there would be no Kalewahi. And to me, that in this new world that I'm living as a parent that is the meaning of aloha aina. Wow. I haven't actually heard anybody talk about it that way and, and weave it through story and lineage in that way. I feel really moved by, by that. I feel really moved by that. Some people may know this already and some people may not know, but you are a part of a family that is known for being artists, educators. I mean, your father is a very well-known scholar, musician, and 
you are also, and I'm, I'm wondering if kind of in this place where we are, I, I still feel when you started talking, you were talking about being at the foot of the Mauna. I, I still feel that place very strongly. I'd like to hear from you the importance of generational movement, this legacy and movement. Like, how are you almost conceptualizing time now that you have a young one and knowing the elders that you come from? How do you relate to generations of movement? I, I begin with the understanding that, and this is not something I understood as a child. This is something I came to understand as I grew older. I had an incredibly privileged upbringing to grow in the malu. The malu is a word we use to describe the shade or the protection. We, when we stand under the mountain, we say we live in the malu of the bauna. I realize now as I have aged, how privileged I was to grow up in the malu of my father and in the malu of his comrades, people like Honani, like Lilikala, Kamehlehiva, like Albert Went, like Teresia Teaiwa, these people who frequented our conversations and our dinner tables. And then to continue to grow older and for that community to broaden for that dinner table to broaden to include people like Mari Matsuda and Charles Lawrence and Joy and Amoro and other, you know, brilliant revolutionary thinkers who have transformed, you know, you say that Hawaii changed the way you, you looked and you, you saw your own environment. I mean, these people changed narrow vision of the world you know, who, who showed me so many intimate connections between my intimate experience as a Native Hawaiian woman and the intimate experiences of so many other people living on other land and fighting connected but distinct violences. I think about how I would have sat at a table with so few of these people had I not been born to my parents. You know, my father's a musician, and that was actually his entry into Hawaiian politics is he was kind of late to doing the school thing and late to the activism thing, but it was music that got him there. It was Hawaiian music that got him there. And so I think if my grandfather and great-grandmother hadn't taught my father these songs, hadn't cultivated in him an intense and unwavering love and connection to our ancestors through this music then he would never have stepped into a university classroom and he would never have studied under and with Haunani, Lilikala, Kanalu, Young. And I may never have been born at all, let alone have been, been able to bear witness to their brilliance. I mean, them being at the center of organizing and movement work when I was a child and to see that as if it was common, as if it was happening in every dining room. I can almost not articulate how transformative that has been to my life as someone who continues against all the violence that has tried to stop this, continues to imagine, continues to believe that we can build something different. Because I grew up thinking that th those conversations were happening in every single home. 
beautiful world to live in as a child and then to kind of be traumatized to realize, oh, wait, this is not happening everywhere. Um, what am I going to do about it? <laughs> um, that was hard. You know, I'm not going to lie. Like the teenage years were difficult because I couldn't reconcile my experience in the intimate parts of my life to the broader experience I was beginning to have as a conscious, free moving person. <laughs> I I've said this before. I think a lot of people assume that my father, the activist, artist, scholar that he is, at some point sat me down and told me, America sucks and all these things are horrible and this is this is the dogma of what we believe and here's our scripture. And I need to make it really clear that that, that never happened. My father allowed me the privilege of accompanying him to, to be you know, the child in the corner or on the laps of all the aunties and uncles as they planned revolution. <laughs> um, and he didn't tell me what was right or what was wrong. He just offered me opportunity to learn from places that my classroom would never take me to. And so as I think about, okay, so how these generations move from my, my great grandparents and beyond who practice and cultivated these stories and these songs and how that became the people, the center of my father's purpose and then blossomed into something, I mean, I, there's no other word for me than spectacular and awe-inspiring, and then has come to shape my life and the way that I think about not only what is possible, but what is our kuleana, what are our responsibilities and privileges to dream and build the world we deserve. That offers both incredibly unclear and also very clear instructions on my job now as a parent. And I am being challenged in new ways because I have always had the privilege and tenacity to speak very directly, to make clear my beliefs, my criticism, my dreams. And I want so badly for my, my daughter to, to have a bit of that magic that I did growing up to think this is happening in every house, that these conversations are happening everywhere. But I also want so badly to allow her dreams and her vision to grow unimpeded by my own. That mine is not just the voice in her head telling her where we need to go, but that I find a way to do what my father somehow magically did and cultivated my ability to dream for myself. And I, I think that is our role as we move from opio, young people, to makua, to parents, we train the next generation, not with necessarily our blueprint, our dogma, our, you know, specific vision, but instead offer them opportunity, access, confidence, support. And those are all like new things I'm not so good at yet. So growth is uncomfortable, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I've, I've been... Um... Since earlier, when you were sharing about tourism in Hawaii, I've been thinking about just this, the discomfort people, and I'm not doing this in a careful way, but the discomfort people might experience in hearing this for the first time. And I think it's really important. I think it's really important for us to have those spaces. There's so much growth in the discomfort. There's something here for me to confront about what I've always taken for granted. And there's something new to create here. And I actually don't know how yet to do that. 
I think there's such an offering in that. That's how we grow. It's how we mature. One thing we haven't really touched on, I mean, we touched on tourism, but we haven't touched on the militarization of Hawaii and the militarization, I'd say, of the Pacific. Explain and- all the ways the military has ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the, the meta question behind the question? <laughs> How much time you got? What What needs to be said now uh, about the militarization of Hawaii? And maybe I think a connection or a way to kind of move through that is... And I hope this doesn't add a unnecessary layer, but I'm thinking about sovereignty and what sovereignty means. I was in some ways introduced to the depth of what sovereignty could be in Hawaii. And it comes very much up against how I experienced the, the way that Hawaii has been so deeply militarized. So maybe that's a way through it is thinking about sovereignty, but I've just, whatever feels necessary to share now. For sure. Where to begin? Since we did talk about tourism, it it might be useful to begin articulating the connection between tourism and the military. There's a word that was coined by brilliant, radical, wonderful, late, great Teresia Te'aiwa. The word is militarism. And she articulates beautifully how these logics, how these systems are interlocking. In a place like Hawaii, there's not enough time in the world to detail all the ways that these things are are working together. But what I can tell you is the two, you know, main parts of the Hawaii economy are tourism and military spending. And this has completely gridlocked our fake state into you know, refusing any kind of imagination of another way to live, right? Any any call to reduce military impact or footprint in Hawaii is met with, we can't survive without the military, not just because they're here to protect us, but because what will we do without their money? And the same thing is met when you talk about imagining a different world in Hawaii than one that is run by tourism. So I'll, I'll leave that there. These things are connected. The military, the U.S. military in Hawaii has, they've been here since January 17th, 1893, when Marines were landed in Honolulu Harbor and assisted in the overthrow of our Hawaiian kingdom. That day began what is technically an ongoing military occupation. So we live under ongoing military occupation. And that occupation has become so normalized. And the the best way I can describe Hawaii is both We live in this strange facade of paradise while also living in a military state. There is no other way to describe Hawaii. Where I live in Wahiawa and kind of like the center of Oahu, my daughter is frequently woken up by Black Hawk helicopters flying, circling overhead, or, you know, gun training happening up the road. We see military Humvees driving on our freeway, like that's normal. Their presence is both everywhere and nowhere, if that makes sense. And their impact on our land and our people and our resources is has been transformative, to say the least. Uh, and this has resulted in a few things. The, the one is that, you know, the military takes up more than 25% of the land on my island alone, and whether it's training areas or housing for military families. Why does this matter? Well, you know, Hawaii has a serious problem, inability to shelter all of our people. 
And that's not only created by the military, but it is certainly exacerbated by the military. Other kind of really important impacts in terms of, you know, the physical, the mental, the spiritual well-being of our people, I think of two kind of events. The first, of course, is you alluded to it in talking about the film. I recently was a part of co-creating a VR film experience called On the Morning You Wake to the End of the World. And the project basically centers in on January 14th, 2018, when everyone in Hawaii got a like an alert message saying that there was a ballistic missile inbound. This is not a drill, take cover. <laughs> and I can't I can't actually say that without laughing. It was outrageous. It was both shocking and unsurprising. I think for anyone with any sense of military history in Hawaii, I mean, you don't have to look back very far to see the way that Hawaii has been made a target, has been used as training ground for American imperial interests, right? I mean, Josh Hartnett's in a whole damn movie about it, Pearl Harbor. You know, I think that that moment revealed something to a lot of us who may have not been thinking about militarism in Hawaii, who may have not been privileged like I have to be in the inner circles of brilliant demilitary activists like Auntie Terry Kekoolani, who's been talking about genuine security for decades, right? As an alternative to national security, this lie we've been sold that we need all this military violence including kind of the, you know, not just the violence on the land, but the violence on our people. We need all this military destruction because it will protect us. The January 14th event was a very stark articulation of who was and wasn't going to be protected under national security. You know, you say you're you're thinking about sovereignty. It's a reminder of what those specific activists of the 1970s and and 80s articulated when they insisted that denuclearizing the Pacific must include independence, right? When it wasn't enough to say we need a nuclear-free Pacific, but a group of organizers said we need to change that to nuclear free and independent Pacific, that these things are linked, that we we will not be beyond the violence of militarism and imperialism if we do not have self-determination, if we are not allowed to make these decisions for ourselves. And, you know, we have a short memory. So a lot's happened since 2018, right? There was the Mauna movement, there was a global pandemic. So even in Hawaii, even though this, the scars of that really traumatic event live on in a lot of people, we don't actually talk about the event very much. And so the U.S. Navy's poisoning of our water has provided both another moment of shock, but also not being surprised. I, I guess what's important for people to know about the military in Hawaii is what's important for people to know about the military, period. And that is that the military only makes possible death. There is nothing else that is produced by militarism besides death, besides violence. And we're talking about contamination of water. We're talking about depleted uranium in our soil. We're talking about violence against women, direct violence and, and rape to women, queer people, trans people. I could cite all the horrible stories. There is no good that comes from this kind of accumulation than the violent protection of power. And Hawaii is unfortunately 
one place where you don't actually have to look that hard to see it. It is just under the surface. And I think, again, like I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of an optimist. I'm a cautious optimist, which means I have to be able to find the opportunity, the lesson, the ha'avina, as we'd say, the homework, the teaching in the harm that's being done to us. And if there is anything useful or that can be turned to good from this harm, it is that sifting just below the surface of what we've come to take for granted in Hawaii in terms of the military is an opportunity to challenge militarism everywhere. It is an opportunity to look to the horizon and to remember Bikini, Aniwatak, Kiribas, Kalama, Merlinga, Imu, all these places that have been harmed by Western imperialism and, and militarism. It is it is an opportunity to to look to Turtle Island and the way the military has completely damaged and destroyed so many environments and peoples there. It's an opportunity to look to Palestine, to forge connections with our comrades there who who share similar but distinct experiences with military occupation. And when it's as urgent as the water being poisoned, I think it it helps us all commit a bit more to this urgency, a bit more to this is now about all of us. It is very hard to say that this is about someone else now when it's in the water, when you live on an island and it's in the water. This was actually the topic of conversation in my class this morning. And one of my students said the, the hardest part for her about the water contamination and everything going on around it is that she can't trust that her water is safe. And I, I asked my students, how many of you feel this way? Every single one of them throws their hands in the air. And I just, I grieve for these students and I grieve for myself. I grieve for my daughter. There were already so many fears and terrors that we have carried with us on our backs. This one thing that we've always said will give us life, ole kawai, water is life. We cannot, we cannot trust it. We cannot trust that it has been protected. I don't think that's a trauma that is ever going to just go away. <sighs> Thank you for sharing that. And I, you know, years ago, I think it was 2015, I had gone to Ferguson to support some organizers there. And the next day I had flown to Big Island, to the island of Hawaii, and gone up to Mauna Kea with the organizers who were there at that time. And I didn't talk to anyone then at the time around that I'd just been in Ferguson because it was something for me to take in in my own body to go between these places and the movement and the uprising and the the resistance to feel that in my body across such significant time and space and geography. Jamaica, Hey, Oli, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing here some of what Hawaii means and for gifting us the discomfort and the reflection and the being seen. I'm really grateful. I, 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 years ago, I was in your house. I heard you sing. And that clarity in your singing voice is, is so palpable in what you share and and how you look. And so I just want to 
say thank you to whomever and however that was cultivated in you. And thank you for sharing it here. I'm really glad I got to connect with you today. Thank you. Finding Our Way is produced and edited by Eddie Hemphill, co-production and visual design by Devin Delania, and assistant editing by Miranda Luis. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and review wherever it is that you listen to this podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at Finding Our Way Podcast, or email us with questions, suggestions, or feedback at findingourwaypod at gmail.com. You can also help sustain this podcast by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. You can find us on Patreon at Finding Our Way Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Finding Our Way.